This was before John Bonet Ramsey, before you started hearing about parents even being considered suspects in something like this. The cops developed a theory of what happened here. They thought that, that there must have been some horrible accident in the house. He says, nobody got in that window. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. If the Dwallaby family had any plans to spend September 18th, the day after their daughter's funeral, mourning in peace, then they were going to be sadly disappointed because investigators and the media had a different plan. The front page of the Chicago Tribune carried a story titled Strangling of Seven-Year-Old Girl Remains a Puzzle to Police. The article was one of the first to highlight the lack of evidence police had implicating the Dwallabies, but the title alone made Cynthia break down and run into Jacqueline's bedroom. It was the first time that she learned how Jacqueline was killed. Early that morning, Midlothian police had applied for a warrant to search the Dwallaby's car, property and the person of David Dwallaby. Just the day after laying their daughter to rest, Cynthia and David were startled by a loud knock on their front door. A team of 21 police officers armed with search warrants stormed into their home. The officers were from Midlothian Police, the Illinois State Police, the FBI and several suburban police departments. I don't think you're supposed to come in here unless our lawyers are present, David said, but the officers assured them that they could be there. It had only been three days since there had been officers stationed at the house 24-7 for five days. The street was closed off to traffic for hours as the media and onlookers converged to get a glimpse of the spectacle. Hayden Baldwin, the crime scene technician, was on the team that conducted the warranted search of the home. They collected a light pink blanket from the basement, ropes, two pillowcases, Jacqueline's pillow, the top and bottom sheets from Jacqueline's bed, and her mattress pad. Again, photographs were taken of the interior and exterior of the house. Just days earlier, Midlothian Police Chief William Fisher had requested cooperation of the Dewallaby family and had asked them to sign a consent form. However, Anne, who was the owner of the home, had refused, telling Chief Fisher that she would not be doing anything without the consent of her attorney. However, they then returned with a search warrant. By the afternoon, police would leave the ranch-style home with nine paper bags filled with items to be examined in the state crime laboratory, as well as the light blue Chevy Malibu that the family owned. The Chevy Malibu was towed to a garage where forensic experts examined it and returned it to the family later on that afternoon. 
taken from the car as evidence was a roll of twine, a hairnet and the black matting from the trunk of the car. Police released a statement in which they said they believed that Jacqueline had been strangled manually and that the rope had been tied around her neck as a ruse to confuse police. However, Dr. Robert Stein, the medical examiner who conducted the autopsy, was quick to refute this claim, saying that he was certain that Jacqueline had been strangled to death with the rope. Shortly afterwards, police then released a statement which said that the family members had not yet been ruled out as suspects, to which one of the Dwallaby's attorneys, Lawrence Hyman, replied that they were innocent of any wrongdoing whatsoever and that the police investigation was an outrage. Jacqueline uh, disappeared on September 10. And when this guy, uh, uh, Captain uh, Daniel McGillick from the Illinois State Police, took charge of the investigation the next day on the 11th, and when on the 13th, uh, his evidence technician, a guy named uh, uh, Hayden Baldwin, uh, told McGillick that uh, in his judgment, this window had been broken from the inside. I think that's when the tunnel vision really started. The physical evidence was sent to the state crime lab for analysis. Davy was upset by the scene. The four-year-old didn't understand why there were police officers in their home again. Where's Jacqueline, he asked. Jacqueline is in heaven, Cynthia told him. He asked when Jacqueline was coming back. Cynthia simply told him that when someone goes to heaven, they don't come back but you still love them and keep them in your heart. Cynthia still couldn't believe that it was Jacqueline they had found. Oftentimes, they slept at a neighbor's house because Cynthia couldn't sleep in the house anymore. David replaced all of the locks and started to sleep with a shotgun nearby. Davy was becoming increasingly anxious. He would no longer sleep without a light on and refused to sleep near the window and would scream if he saw a shadow, terrified that he would be taken next. Cynthia and David moved Davy's mattress into their bedroom and put it beside their bed. Cynthia would reach down and hold Davy's hand until they both fell asleep. The family, understandably, didn't want to speak to the media while in mourning. Thankfully, they had a horde of supporters who would defend them to anybody that would listen. Neighbours stood by the family and let the media know that the Dwallabies were a loving and caring family, and that they never once heard either parent raise their voice to Jacqueline or Davy. David's boss, Ron Patterson, recalled that the only time David took a day off was when he picked up the adoption papers for Jacqueline, describing David as a proud and happy person. Many of the locals couldn't help but feel like the investigation was turning into a witch hunt, with Cynthia and David in the firing line. Cynthia said, After the police searched our house, the place was a mess. Doors were left open, beds were moved, papers were lying on the floor. We noticed that they had gone up to the attic. I kept a treasure box up there with my wedding dress and other special things in it. I looked through the box and found Jacqueline's baby book. All of the pages were torn out. Her first tooth, first food, things like that. Only the cover remained. 
I never saw anything about it in a police report. I never knew who took it. It was one more thing taken away from me about Jacqueline. Captain McDevitt told reporters that there had been no communication from the Dwallabies since the day that Jacqueline's body was found. Continuing on the lead that Cynthia and David could have been involved with Jacqueline's murder, investigators returned to the area that her body had been found and distributed photographs of Cynthia and David, as well as photographs of their car among the residents of the apartment block. Inquiring as to whether anybody had seen them in the area. They also showed photographs of four other women and four other men. Joe Cosman was one of the officers on the task force. Yeah, this was this was the well, not the major. We've had murders and things like that in Blue Island, uh, but this one was a young child, and this was before John John Bonet Ramsey. Before you started hearing about parents even being considered suspects in something like this. I mean, this was groundbreaking. And that's why I said at first, they were not the targets. They were There were some things that caused people to pause and say, well, well that's weird. Uh, but there was, it was just a series of things. It, it was not where they were targeted right from the go. This was like, the, the Wallaby case was like the first big one that really... It really shook Illinois up. It really did. Because, especially towards the end, when it started focusing on the parents, and I think the public focused on the parents way before we did. You know, what we were told is they were looking into several different things. There was no one strong. Uh, There were some things. You know, they weren't focused on just one or two people. You know, it... They might have been, there were some things said in the original interviews that kind of brought pause to the investigators. But see now, her body was found on a Wednesday, maybe by that Friday, Saturday. Yeah, and, and, and when they started doing that, that's uh, it started narrowing. But even after that, Dan McDivitt, who was the captain from the state police who ran the investigation at the start of every meeting or, or uh intelligence meeting would say okay are we missing anything is there anyone else we want to look at in fact i remember mike schultz from midlothian he's since passed but he says you know there was something about the mailman okay let's go look at the mailman again so i mean it was never okay it's them and no one else we we tried to look at everything and uh it just got became apparent to us that we didn't think anyone else got into that house at that point we uh We were involved in the day-to-day activities. Like I said, we went to the meetings. We talked about anybody who possibly could have been a suspect. We were brought up to speed. And it just kept coming down that it didn't appear that anyone could have gotten into that house. What what, what it became apparent is it goes back to that Friday night. uh, The Friday she went missing is David had bowled at Broke Bowl in Blue Island, and this probably would have been on the route he would take to get back to Midlow. Two residents, Derek Darling and Gloria Lake, had said that they saw a Chevrolet Malibu near the Islander apartments on September 13th at 1.30pm. 
they were sure about the time because they had gone to make a phone call. Darling recalled the car having rust spots and one of the front signal lights was more dull than the other. Dwallaby's Malibu had one dull light. The problem was it couldn't have been their car. At that time, on that day, Cynthia was being interviewed by the police at home and her Chevy Malibu was parked out front. On September 20th, just a couple of days after the investigators searched the Dwallaby home, they went public with their belief that Cynthia and David were involved in the murder. However, they did not elaborate as to why they had come to this conclusion or what it was based on. Much to the outrage of Cynthia's attorney, Lawrence Hyman, who exclaimed that there was no evidence of any kind against the couple. A statement penned by the attorneys read, The Dwallaby family is innocent of any wrongdoing. They have cooperated fully with law enforcement. This investigation has become accusatorial. It is an outrage that police and others are compounding their tragedy by inferring that members of the Dwallaby family are suspects or have withheld any information on the death of their daughter. Were investigators on the case assuming guilt because of Cynthia and David's reluctance to speak to them through fear of implicating themselves? Cynthia, David, their attorney, and much of the public believe so. It isn't unheard of for family members of murder victims to plead the fifth, because if they were to say something that police found suspicious or strange, even if they were completely innocent, then they could still be implicated or arrested. Most of the media statements came directly from the police, so the Wallaby's narrative never came across. The only reporter who seemed to speak out against the constricting investigation was Channel 5's Paul Hogan. He said that the police were using pressure tactics on the Dwallabies and, quote, only evidence strong enough to lead to arrests, charges and convictions can remove that presumption of innocence. The following day, while police were speaking about the evidence being fast-tracked by the state crime lab, Captain McDivitt told Hogan, off the record, something that would further the media bias and temporarily silence one of the only reporters that believed they were innocent. Uh, the primary uh, factor here is, is tunnel vision. That is, that the cops developed a theory of what happened here. They thought that, that there must have been some horrible accident in the house, that David and Cynthia, one or the other, had, uh, had killed Jacqueline, and then that they tried to cover it up by staging um, a, a break-in and stupidly breaking the window from the inside. Uh, I mean, it, it might have made some sense. Certainly, the, the uh, Illinois State Police commander in charge of the investigation, a guy named Daniel McDivitt, uh, sort of whispered to reporters initially uh, when, when asked, well, how are you so sure that they did it? He said, well, what would you think if I told you the window was broken from the inside? And one of the reporters, uh, a guy, a television reporter named Paul Hogan, basically said, well, that's the ballgame. Obviously, they're guilty. And so I think that that was um, a kind of a, a mindset of the police going into it. The broken glass taken from the Dwallaby's home was analysed by state forensic scientist Joseph Ambrovich, and he found a fingerprint. 
He compared it to Cynthia, David, Anne and Davy's fingerprints and found no match. The other evidence seized during the search, and the evidence taken from the area Jacqueline's body was found, as well as her autopsy, were given to forensic scientist Jenny Han. On the rope found around Jacqueline's neck, there were two hairs. One appeared to be Jacqueline's, the other was not a Caucasian hair. There was also lime green paint found on the rope. There was no such paint in the Dwallaby home. Two hairs were found on Jacqueline's underpants that had been located close to her feet when her body was found. The first appeared similar to Jacqueline's and the second was a brown pubic hair that definitely could not have come from the child. Jacqueline's fingernails had been clipped during the autopsy and there were blood found under seven of the clippings. Han typed the blood and found that it was type O, the same blood type as Jacqueline. It is possible that the blood was a result of decomposition, but it also could have come from the killer. David and Cynthia had given blood samples for testing. Cynthia had type O blood. David had type A. At the time, that was as far as blood analysis went, but there has since been several advancements in that area. Jenny Han also examined the trunk liner taken from the Dwallaby Chevy. There she found some hairs that looked like Jacqueline's and a Caucasian pubic hair. When she analysed the fibres from the quilt Jacqueline was wrapped in and her nightgown, she excluded the possibility that any of the fibres had been on the trunk liner, discrediting the idea that Jacqueline had been transported in the boot. Seventeen days after Jacqueline went missing, Officer Woodark wrote a supplementary report after being instructed by Chief Fisher to include all the details he could think of. In this report, Officer Woodark stated that there was a layer of uniform, undisturbed dust on the windowsill. This piece of information was never noted in his initial report. Over the following months, the Dwallabies tried to regain some semblance of normality, for Davy's sake. David went back to work. The task force were still trying to find Jacqueline's killer. A lot of the members of the team were locals who were parents themselves. It was a massive case that had everyone emotionally invested. We all carried pictures of her in our wallets, just to McDivitt passed them out and says, just to keep you guys motivated. And we carried pictures in our wallet until, until the arrest was made. On October 6th, Hayden Baldwin wrote his crime scene report, apparently using his notes from September 10th, the day he processed the Dwallaby's home. In this report, he stated that he saw a layer of dust on the interior windowsill of the broken basement window, and that he rang his finger across the dust. Baldwin, however, did not photograph the dust or lift it using his tape or electrostatic print lifter, with two members of law enforcement reporting to have noticed the same thing. A layer of dust that would have been disturbed if someone entered the Dwallaby house. The suspect list was narrowing to those who had already been inside. Hayden Baldwin, who was the head investigator, head criminalist for that area's uh, CSI units, he says, nobody got in that window. The case wasn't strong enough to push for an arrest warrant yet. Although many suspected Cynthia and David were involved in Jacqueline's murder, there wasn't enough evidence to prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. And Wallaby was frustrated that the police were focusing on her family instead of looking for an intruder, and called Chief Greaves to try and reason with him. Greaves agreed to speak with her at the station the next morning. When Anne arrived, the Assistant State Attorney Norma Reyes was there with Chief Greaves to interrogate her. 
For four hours, Anne was questioned about Jacqueline's disappearance, her son David and daughter-in-law Cynthia. Reyes drafted a report based on the interview and it included statements that implicated someone in the home as a suspect. These were that the rope found in the Dwallaby home was similar to the one found around Jacqueline's neck, that Anne knew David smoked marijuana and possibly sold it, and that she found no signs of an intruder in her basement bedroom after the window had been broken. Anne wouldn't sign the report. She believed that her account had been twisted and taken out of context, but Reyes told the state attorney's office that Anne just didn't want to implicate her son. While it seemed like the police were unveiling an unsettling secret in the Dwallaby family, the family themselves were coming to terms with revelations that Cynthia's brother had been liaising with the police and believed that David was guilty. He had purposely been feeding his sister and her husband with false information and relaying new evidence to the police to implicate them in their daughter's killing. While the feeling in the neighbourhood was mostly supportive of the Dwallabies, some statements cast doubt on their reputation as a normal, loving family. A neighbour claimed to have seen Davy playing with a rope in the garden a few times. When he was shown the rope found around Jacqueline's neck, he said it looked like the same rope. In late October, Cynthia had also discovered that she was pregnant. The pregnancy was unplanned, but she felt as though it was a good thing, a gift from God to help her find strength to carry on. Nothing would ever replace Jacqueline, but maybe the new baby was their chance to move forward despite their loss, with Jacqueline always in their hearts. The state attorney at the time, Richard Daly, was planning on running for mayor, and some believe that this influenced the case. On November 21st, the day before Daly announced he was running for mayor, and a few days before Thanksgiving, he told Patrick O'Brien, the prosecutor for the state, to press charges against the Dwallabies for murder and concealment of a homicide. A warrant was signed that night. Oh, it was, a, it was, strictly, it was strictly a circumstantial case. And we knew that going in. We knew that there was a chance that it, you know, it took us forever to get it charged. We would go to the state attorney's office and they'd say, well, what about this? What about that? This is all we got. Well, wait, it was election year. It was wait, wait till after the election. Well, again, we laid it all out circumstantially. No one else got into the house. They had, they had control of the house and that little girl. And then afterwards, you have two people who identify his car as being in the lot, one that night and another one subsequent to that. And, and that's what was part of the warrant. And, and a judge says, okay, that's, you know, don't forget for a warrant, you just need probable cause. That a, a, a person, a regular person, would believe that a crime had been committed and this person did the crime. Uh, for conviction, you need beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's a lot different. On November 22nd, 1988, David was due at work. His boss, Ron, answered the phone and the woman on the other end said, Ron, we just woke up and day's going to be a bit late. When David didn't arrive at work, Ron rang the Dwallaby house and spoke to Cynthia. He asked why David hadn't shown up and when he left. He asked Cynthia if she'd called him that morning to say David would be late. Cynthia replied that David had left at the usual time and she'd no idea what Ron was talking about. That wasn't her on the phone. David was missing. Cynthia panicked. She thought David had been taken away just like Jacqueline had been. 
She called their lawyer, Ralph Mechick, and told him that David was missing. The police had said that they'd inform the lawyers if they were going to arrest David and Cynthia so that they could go to the station themselves and avoid the crowds. While Cynthia was on the phone, a team of officers entered her house and took the phone from her. They had a warrant for her arrest. The same officers who comforted her the night Jacqueline's body was found were now reading her her rights and arresting her in connection with the murder of her daughter. Davy wasn't awake yet. He was asleep on his mattress beside his parents' bed. Cynthia worried that she wouldn't get to say goodbye or explain where she was going. Anne was home, so she could take care of Davy, but Cynthia knew he was going to wake up and wonder when he was going to see his parents again. When Cynthia was placed into a police car and driven towards Blue Island Police Station, officers went back into the house and began looking for Davy. The little boy was asleep in his parents' room. He had been terrified to sleep alone in case someone came in to take him away. Now he was waking up to find that two officers were there to do just that. David had left for work as normal that morning. A short distance away from his house, he was pulled over in what appeared to be a routine traffic stop at 147th and Lawndale. The patrolman asked David to identify himself, and when he did, he was arrested and placed into the back of a patrol car. He didn't get the chance to call Cynthia or his boss. Instead, a policewoman had called and pretended to be Cynthia, and told David's boss that he would be late. The couple were brought to the Blue Island Police Station separately. The media had been tipped off and were already waiting. Cynthia said, I could see one officer in the front seat look at himself in the mirror and adjust his tie. The other one was also fixing himself, trying to make sure he looked good. Both officers in the front seat got out and headed towards the reporters and the cameras. They left me and the other officer in the back. We were locked in. We couldn't get out. It was like they forgot us. We sat there for a couple of minutes before they remembered and came back for us. And I was supposed to be their big prisoner. Cynthia was led through a crowd of reporters from every regional paper, five news channels and various radio stations. Cameras flashed and voices called out asking her what she had done as she was brought in to the station. Once the word got out, because by that time they were monitoring everything we did, we tried to do it as secretive as possible uh, to avoid the media circus. But by the time we got to Midlothian police station, we had placed them under arrest like seven in the morning on the way to work. Then Cynthia was arrested in her house. And from there, it word got out somehow. I don't know if she was allowed to make phone calls, called her family or what, but word got out. By the time we got to the station, uh, media was there already. So all they got was us bringing them in from the cars. They get they get fingerprinted. They get fingerprinted. They get uh, mug shots taken. We then tried to interview him again. And, you know, I don't recall if he at that time invoked for a lawyer or if he did talk. Uh, same thing with Cynthia. I don't remember. They had given other statements, so, and. Uh, then the, the next day they have bond hearing and the judge sets a bond for him. 
Cynthia could hear David calling out for her while she was being booked in, so she knew that he was there too. She was allowed to make one phone call and she rang Anne to see if Davy was okay. She was worried that he was upset after waking up and finding that she was gone. Anne had to tell Cynthia that Davy had been taken away and she wasn't told where they were taking him. Cynthia had no time to process this news before she was booked in and had her mugshot taken. Shortly after she was taken into the interrogation room, Cynthia recalled, there was a terrarium on the table with this tarantula in it. I saw it as I walked in the door. I sat down at the table and the officer who brought me in started saying, you're never going to see your son again. You're never going to see your husband again. You better confess. Nobody has money for you. No one in your family has money. You'll never be able to raise money for an attorney, and no attorney is ever going to believe you. Cynthia tried to maintain her composure. She knew her lawyer was on the way, so she sat in silence. The investigator tried to get Cynthia to speak. They asked her if she had killed Jacqueline. They then attempted to intimidate her by throwing furniture around. An envelope was brought into the room. Chief Greaves held it in his hands before he slid it across the table to where Cynthia was sitting. Cynthia was sitting with her head in her hands, but as the envelope was pushed towards her, two photographs spilled out, and she had no opportunity to avoid them. The photographs were of Jacqueline, her daughter's decomposed body. The photographs were of Jacqueline's leg and her mouth. Cynthia hadn't been allowed to see Jacqueline after her body was recovered. It would have been too traumatic and the decision was made for Jacqueline's casket to remain sealed. But now, there was no mistaking it. All of the hopes that Cynthia had, that the police had made a mistake and it wasn't Jacqueline, were dashed instantly. You know your child's mouth. Every smile, every pout, every quiver of their bottom lip when they are upset. There is no denying it now. Her daughter really was dead. One FBI agent in particular was a fundamentalist Christian and he kept telling them, you know, God will forgive you, all you gotta do is, <laughs> you know, uh, things of that sort. Uh, and I think that uh, playing into that, like, look here, here, here's this, this is what you did. This is this maggot-infested body of this lovely little girl. And you did this. Uh, now, you, you know, the only way you can make this right with the Lord is, um, uh, you know, is confess. Take it off your conscience. Uh, yeah, that was the effort. It didn't work in this case. It has worked in other cases. Cynthia turned her back to the officer and the photographs. A female officer entered the room and said she didn't have to look at the photographs. She could just put them away. Cynthia declined. She didn't want to touch them or see them. Another officer then came in and said, We'll have to use the tarantula. Her back was still to the officers when one said, By the way, the tarantula's name is Confess. Cynthia feared that they might put the spider on her, but she knew that there was just no way they would actually do that. It was just a scare tactic. The investigators also tried to pit the couple against each other. There's no question. 
question, that they believed that, that upon the arrest and getting them into custody that they'd be able to, uh, to obtain confessions. Uh, they didn't, unfortunately, because David and Cynthia were, uh, they were pretty strong and, and, uh, and, and they knew that uh, uh, each of them, they both knew that they were both innocent. Uh, so the, the police didn't have as much leverage as they might have in other cases. You see, often in these cases, uh, uh, two people are arrested, uh, maybe their friends, so they'll separate them for an interrogation, and then they'll come tell one, all oh, the other guys told us all about it, and uh, mailed, and, and it's blaming you, and unless, uh, unless you have a story to tell, and this is your only chance to tell it, uh, it looks like you're going to take the rap. Uh, well, that, that those kinds of techniques often uh, produce, uh, uh, you know, unreliable uh, confessions. Uh, those kinds of things ought to be banned. Uh, you know, in in, um, in Great Britain, the police are not allowed, allowed to lie to suspects during interrogation. In the United States, they are allowed to lie, uh, and uh, uh, that ought to be changed, uh, but it has not been changed. David had been brought to a conference room where he was questioned by Chief Greaves and Captain McDevitt. Greaves said, Listen, David, what's done is done. If it was an accident, just tell us. It changes the whole complexion of the case. David burst into tears and said, I have nothing to say to you. McDevitt presented a photograph of Jacqueline, her kindergarten photo, and gestured to his heart, saying, I keep this right here. David asked if he could have the photograph before McDivitt spread more in front of him. This time, the photographs weren't of his little girl smiling in school. They were autopsy photographs showing a heavily decomposed child in full colour. Chief McDivitt said, This is what you did. Take a look at these. David turned his head away. The investigators implied that he would only get three years for concealment of a corpse. If he told them, it was an accident. But David remained silent. Many of the investigators believed that there had been some kind of accident in the home on the night before Jacqueline was reported missing, and thought that the murder charges might prompt David to admit that was what had happened. They thought that because Cynthia had supposedly proclaimed herself as the disciplinarian before, and the fact that Jacqueline wasn't David's biological child, suggested that Cynthia had killed Jacqueline, and David was covering for her. They theorised that there was no way that Cynthia would cover for David if he killed her child. But if she was the one who killed Jacqueline, David would fall into the protector role that he had always played. The Dwallaby's attorneys arrived at the station at around 10am. They were furious that their clients had been arrested and perp-walked between Blue Island and Midlothian Police Station, allowing the media to get plenty of footage of the alleged baby killers. The couple were then returned to Blue Island Police Station, where they spent the night. A press conference was held that evening. Captain McDivitt pointed at a photograph of Jacqueline and said, We did it for her. The following morning, a hearing was held in relation to getting low bail for the Dwallabies. Judge Michael Bolin presided. 
The Dwallaby's lawyers, Mechik and Hyman, said that their clients posed low flight risks and had not left, despite knowing their arrest was likely throughout the investigation. The prosecution, Patrick O'Brien, said that the couple should be denied bail because the evidence against them was strong and the crime was a potential capital offence. O'Brien alleged the rope found around Jacqueline's neck was the same rope that a neighbour had seen Davy playing with and they had a witness that placed David at the scene where Jacqueline's body had been found. The judge initially dismissed O'Brien's claims until they had a private meeting during a recess. After this, Judge Boland denied Bond. He said Jacqueline's murder was depraved in an act bereft of mercy. He also said, When you strangle a seven-year-old with a rope, it's heinous conduct and wantonly cruel. A preliminary hearing was scheduled for December 2nd, over a week later. David and Cynthia were transferred to Cook County Jail after being refused bail. While being transferred, she was handcuffed tightly. This was the first time she told the police that she was pregnant. As she was being led to the cell block, taunts and threats echoed throughout the building. She was moved to an isolation cell for her own safety. Cynthia remembers the cell being bitterly cold. They didn't give her anything to keep her warm through her first night alone without her husband or son. She was terrified that David was being beaten by the police and worried about Davy. She still hadn't been told where he was or why he was taken away. Were they being subjected to the same intimidation tactics that she was? Did Davy think that they had abandoned him? David was driven to the jail by Chief Greaves, and on the way over, Greaves attempted to get David to confess, saying, If this was an accident, now's the time to tell the truth. You still have this one last shot. David replied, I have nothing to say. When word broke about the Dwallaby's arrest, the locals were shocked. They'd been living in fear, and now it seemed like the culprits lived right down the street. John Bitten said, We got numerous calls from neighbours worried about a child killer on the streets. It was very frustrating not being able to tell them anything, that the prime suspects were the parents. Uh, So it was probably the evidence to obtain the warrant uh, would have been based on the man identification. The authorities have a whole case that's predicated on the presumption that the child was murdered in the house and that this window was broken to cover up the crime. The Dwallabies were just allegedly bad people. It's widely known that eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. One remarkable case, which could be used for the poster child of inaccurate witness testimony, is that of Kirk Bloodsworth. In 1985, Kirk was convicted of the sexual assault, rape and first-degree murder of nine-year-old Don Hamilton in Rosedale, Maryland, and subsequently sentenced to die in the gas chamber. His conviction rested predominantly on five separate eyewitnesses that placed him with the victim on the day of the murder. Even though two of these witnesses were unable to pick him out of a lineup. After serving nine years behind bars, additional DNA testing that was requested by Kirk proved that the semen found in Don's underwear was not his, and he was released. This isn't an isolated incident either. The Innocence Project conducted a report that discovered that since the 1990s when DNA testing was introduced, 73% of the 239 convictions that were overturned because of DNA 
were based on eyewitness testimony. There is a misconception that memory works like a videotape in the sense that we can store information and then play it back whenever we want. However, memory doesn't work that way. Memories are reconstructed and fragments of memory can often be combined with information that somebody has seen on television or been provided by the police. What people think they may have seen can be a combination of what they saw, what they thought they saw, and what was provided to them, rendering eyewitness testimony imprecise. Nevertheless, going on the belief that a resident saw David in the vicinity of the crime scene was enough for him and his wife to be charged with first-degree murder. During a routine interview with residents of the apartment, Everett Mann had told investigators that he had seen a dark-coloured car near the dumpster Jacqueline was found behind just after 2am on the 10th of September. He said that he was around 75 yards away so had been unable to make out the identity of the person or even the gender or race. Intrigued, investigators decided to conduct a further interview with Mann to try and ascertain if he knew anything else about the sighting. During this second interview, Mann said he had caught a glimpse of the unidentified person in the car but could only describe the side profile features of his nose, which he said was large and straight. Mann was shown an array of photographs of five men, all frontal views. David Dwallaby's photograph was in the collection, although it was 30% larger than the rest. Mann said that he couldn't be sure any of the men looked like the person he saw in the car that night, but David Dwallaby's nose structure looked the most similar. Mann was then taken to the Blue Island Police Station, where his statement was recorded. Here, Mann says that he had finished work at 10.30pm on Friday, September 9th, and spent the evening with a woman before returning back to the Islander apartments at approximately 2am. As he pulled into the dimly lit car park, he saw headlights of another car pulling out of the parking lot. When asked if he saw any occupants in the car, he stated that he saw what looked like a male's head with a large straight nose. He wasn't sure what race the occupant was, but judging by his hairstyle, he presumed that he was white. It had been a dark, moonless night in Blue Island. The car park was not well lit, having just one light by the building and some more street lights in the distance. Mann stated that he was about 75 yards from the car when he saw the driver's silhouette. When asked about the car, Mann said that it looked similar to a late 70s version of a Chevrolet Malibu, but wasn't sure what colour the car was. He said it could have been dark blue, navy blue, black or dark brown. Again, he picked David Dwallaby's photo from the lineup. Next, man was taken to Midlothian Police Station where he was interviewed by State Police Officer Kevin Shocknessy. According to Shocknessy's report, Mann told him that the vehicle was a dark-coloured, mid-sized car which he thought to be about a 1975 Chevrolet Malibu. Mann told the officer that he knew what a Malibu looked like because his sergeant in the Air Force drove one and he made sure he knew about the car to impress him. Mann may have been trying to impress the officers too with a specific recollection of that night. It would later emerge that he had ambitions to work in law enforcement, having applied to join the Chicago Police Force, the State Police and the FBI a few years previously. This may have gone against Mann as a witness, but the fact that he admitted to being out with a woman that wasn't his wife made him more credible. Just as the investigation began to focus on the Dwallabies, Mann's witness statement became more specific. The dark-coloured car, 
was now a 1979 Chevy Malibu. The silhouette of a driver was now an identification of David, and this was enough to secure a warrant for the Dwallaby's arrest on Tuesday the 22nd of November. Blue Island Police Chief Paul Greaves referred to this eyewitness testimony as excellent evidence that made them able to eliminate all other leads. They never elaborated what these other leads were. Now, you know, often, I mean, I've seen phenomena uh, uh, like this, that, that people become persuaded. Uh, we often see it in uh, identifications. I mean, sometimes when a, a lineup procedure has been recorded, a witness will say, well, I think that's him, or he looks more like the guy than, than anybody else here. I'm pretty sure that's him. But then by the time of the trial, the minute I saw him, I knew absolutely immediately it was him. That witness is not lying. The witness has created a false memory of certainty in the lapse of time. And things like that happen, and that may, that may well have happened here. They just don't have the right people. None of us believe Cindy and David had anything to do with it, said Bob Tolbert, a neighbour of the Dwallaby family. While some locals were just relieved that somebody had been arrested for the shocking murder, most of them felt that there had been a mistake with who they had arrested. The police weren't doing much to alleviate these doubts by not releasing more information as to why they believed the Dwallabies had killed their daughter. Another neighbour said that David and Cynthia were loving and caring parents and that they were an exceptionally close family and that she had never even seen them argue. Uh, everybody we met uh, in Midlothian was very supportive of the Dwalabies. Uh I mean, the people who knew them, the friends of the family and the neighbours, they were all universally uh, supportive of the Dwalabies. We interviewed several of the neighbours where, you know, where David and, and, and Cynthia uh, were looking for, for Jacqueline and they were 100% of the opinion that, that David and Cynthia were innocent. Yeah, we didn't, we didn't actually, you know, we didn't go out and, and, and canvas the neighborhood, and, but we didn't encounter, we literally didn't encounter anybody who believed they were guilty in Midlothian at the time, other than cops. By this point in the investigation, police had started to theorize that the shattered window in the basement was nothing more than a ruse created by Cynthia and David to imply that somebody else had broken into the home. Bob Tolbert briefly spoke with the Chicago Tribune and said that he knew for a fact the basement window had not been shattered before the 10th of September. He said that he had resodded his lawn in the summer and had used over 100,000 gallons of water between June and August. He said that he had brought his hose between his house and the Dewallaby's house and said that the window had not been shattered then. In fact, he said that he had videotaped evidence that the window was not shattered. When he told police about it, he said that they weren't interested and didn't ask to see the footage, taking a new approach in the search for evidence that could sway their case. Police decided they would turn their attention to the Dewallaby's four-year-old son, Davy, who was to be examined by a physician. David and Cynthia were behind bars alone, they were left wondering how they could be charged with their daughter's murder, if their spouse was okay, and where their son was. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Shattered Window. 
The Shattered Window is a completely independent podcast paid for out of our own pockets. If you'd like to support the show in return for loads of bonus content, behind the scenes, merch and more, then please check out The Shattered Window on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. Also make sure you visit us at theshatteredwindow.com for more information about this episode and follow us on social media to keep up to date with the case and any developments. If you enjoy The Shattered Window, it would mean the world if you left us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening. Ratings and reviews are an easy way to support a show that you enjoy and can help us reach new listeners. Once again, thank you for listening and until next time, take care of yourselves, stay safe and have an amazing week.